Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to thank our sponsor, QVAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical tasks, developing deep personal relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Colleagues, is your organization thinking about a capital campaign, hiring a new development officer, or taking your fundraising efforts to another level? How about inviting myself and another member of Responsive's consulting team to facilitate a two-day sense-making experience for your team? Our two-day sense-making retreats are custom-designed to ensure that your entire team is making sense of what's most working in your favor and what's getting in your way. If this sounds like something you might be interested in, click the simple form in the show notes and we'll be happy to arrange an introductory call. Hi, podcast listeners. I am delighted that you're joining us today. Um, I am super excited today because we've got Noah, a member of our consulting team, and we've got Martha. Uh, I think it's later, in, much later in the day for her. She's on the other side of the, uh, of the Atlantic, and she's got some big news to talk to us about, about the upcoming conference at the end of the month. Uh, for the sake of my listeners, folks, I am going to like totally take a back seat. So Noah, my colleague and co-host, he is going to take the front seat here. And we're going to see if these guys can warm up a pretty meaningful conversation. Um, those of you who are my regular listeners, you know that it is really hard for me not to hop up on a soapbox and not rant and rave about something. Um, and oftentimes say something stupid. So this is kind of a test. Can Jason actually shut up for 30 minutes? Um, so uh, Noah, let's start that test. The show is all yours. Uh, t- Noah, tell us who you are and then please uh, introduce our guest. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Jason. Let the test begin now. So yeah, so wonderful to be with you both again. Um, I'm Noah Gerding. I am a member of the Responsive Fundraising Team, and I call the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul in Minnesota home. Um, We are delighted here to have Martha. Uh, I don't even know where to begin with Martha, so I'm just going to stop. And Martha, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having me. And I can totally relate to that ranting and raving. Um, if you let me talk, I will never, ever, ever stop. Uh, <laughs> this is why I've made talking a living, probably. Um, but yes, my, my name is Martha. Um, as you can probably tell, I'm from Britain. Um, I grew up in London and I've recently moved to Manchester if you're into football. Um, and I am the CEO of JMD Consulting, which is a 
consulting firm that supports nonprofits and beyond, really, to really reckon with their relationship to white supremacy and dismantle that. Um, aside from that, I'm also the curator of the BAME Online Conference, which we'll be talking a little bit about uh, later on, which is kind of the first conference of its kind in the UK, which brings people of colour together to talk about racism, the charity sector, and particularly about philanthropy and how we move money in a way that advances liberation for all people rather than um, pursuit of profit for just a few. Yeah. See, I feel like I don't even know where to begin. Um, so that was wonderful. Thank you. So we, as you, as our listeners may know, we always ask our guests about a big idea, um, dare I say, something even disruptive. Um, so wondering what you have for us today, Martha. Well, my idea is not my idea. Um, most ideas are probably not the people who are saying those ideas either. Um, but my idea, I guess, is a continuation of black, black feminist tradition um, and it's uh, Audre Lorde's idea around the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Um, and working in and around philanthropy for the last 12 years, um, I've seen funders, fundraisers, organisations who actually have like good intentions around like wanting to dismantle racism. Um, who use the same institutional structures, frameworks, toolkits for measuring success, for distributing funding that is part of a legacy of empire and colonialism. So these very tools that were created in order to create an unjust um, social order are being used to dismantle that. Um, And for me, like it is, yeah, so these are some of, I guess, the biggest questions of our times for me. Um, and it kind of goes to show how leaders in the philanthropic space, in the charity space, why they might, while they might have good intentions, really have no idea what it means to decolonize. Um, and, you know, so much of that comes from decolonizing yourself, your mind, right? And Sometimes I think we think, okay, we want to be anti-racist, we want to decolonize, so we're going to create a program. And it's like, actually, we need to rip apart the very fabrics of our understanding of knowledge <laughs> of, you know, our value system. So that's the big question. I feel like I went off into a rant, uh, <laughs> which oh. is what I'm known for. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's the big idea that isn't mine, but is still as important as it was when Audrey Lord said it. All those years ago. Yeah, that's, um, that's a big one. So one of the things that I'm, you know, in our uh, brief relationship over these past several months, Martha, one of the things that I am most grateful for are your questions that have gotten me to a different space of understanding how I have been complicit, um, or how understanding what I have done when I've been part of either organizations or cultures or systems that are perpetuating exactly what you're talking about. So I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack for, for us a little bit more about what that enablement or that, that perpetuation of this whole broken system and cycle has felt like, um, maybe even felt like for you in this work. Yeah, I mean, I guess in in order to really reckon with it, we have to start with ourselves, right? And Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, my background is in fundraising and I was actually a corporate fundraiser for the majority of my time doing fundraising, which I loved. It was so fun. I got to go to all the fantasy events. I got to, you know, go into rooms that I would never, I would never, you know, I was a queer black person from Tottenham. Uh, if you know anything about <laughs> the boroughs in London, like Tottenham is one of the more deprived areas, right? Like I, w- I was, you know, having lobster it- with millionaires and it was super cool. But I think I was getting lost in that kind of uh, bravado, in that kind of wealth, in it's that kind of flamboyant show of wealth. Um, and I was taking money from property developers who were, you know, part of the problem of wealth inequality and, you know, the institutionalization of homelessness, like all of that. I was taking, you know, peanuts for my organization, but at the same time, I worked for a homeless charity. And at the same time, like laundering the reputation of um, organizations that um, were, you know, invested in widening the gap of inequality in extracting uh, from black and brown people in hoarding wealth right and I had to kind of wake up to that uh, as we all have to right in order Mm -hmm. to make change Um, and I think you know sometimes I mean I'm always thinking about um, there's a Hawaiian activist called Coco Lamey who talks about the process of decolonization Um, and mourning is the second part so the, the learning and unlearning the second part is mourning and often we try and avoid like feelings of disgust at ourselves, of uncomfortableness, uh, because nobody wants to feel, you know, horrible feelings. Um, but it's really with engaging with that that allows, I think, empathy, firstly. Um, but also um I think I think helps us to dismantle some of that saviorism that is so prevalent in the charity sector, right? Um when you realize that you're part of a problem rather than some kind of like defender of freedoms, right? You can start to kind of see these structures for what they really are uh, more often than not. But I think, yeah, you, you, you do have to have to have a moment of realizing that you're part of the problem. And I think if you don't realize that you're part of the problem and understand the complicated kind of web of the fact that you could be doing good at the same time as perpetuating harm, Things are not as black and white, you know, as we like to believe in the charity sector. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we're all complicit, you know. I mean, I have worked for large organisations, small organisations. I've worked for organisations where instead of partnering with small black-led organisations who were closest to people who were most affected by particular issues, we were sucking up all the contracts. We were taking all the money. We were winning, right? Um, and that kind of logic I think of capitalism of uh profit feeds into the way even the way we fundraise right we fundraise our goals are arbitrary you know raise more money than we did last year (laughs) rather than thinking about what does it mean to like solve the problem that we're actually trying to solve and so much of that is about collaboration right Mm. um so yeah, I've definitely had to. I mean, I've got a big ego. Like I like, I like myself. Like I, you know, <laughs> I am. Like I'm. I'm okay with saying that. Like I really do. I am, and it's fine. Um, but parting with my ego has been really hard. And even as I've started to dismantle or think about dismantling these structures, I've realised that I can end up replicating some of these like capitalist. I think imperialist logics 
in my attempt to dismantle things, you know, when I think about how I approach some work with urgency, like, you know, or the way my assets, my, my relationship to perfectionism, um, all of that is kind of part and parcel of this, this kind of colonial project. Um, and until you do the deep work to recognize the white supremacist within, as I like to say, or the capitalist within, you're doomed, I think, to replicate the master tools. Um, and it's not like you can't you can't just sit there and reflect forever. Obviously, like there has to be some some kind of balance. But yeah, I think I've had to go on a real journey of uh, realizing who I am and looking at myself in the mirror and saying I'm not above white supremacy. Like I am infected by it. We all are. It's my you know it's my teacher. It's my parent. It's my best friend. It's my partner. Like, you know, white supremacy is the air that we breathe. Like, how could I be immune from that just because I'm black, you know? Mm -hmm. So, in a, it's a, in a round, yes, a long answer to, to, to a question that I'm still answering, you know? Like, it's, it's a never-ending process of realizing your own complicity. Just when I think, oh, I've got it, I haven't got it. <laughs> and right. I'm, you know, I'm perpetuating this harm. I'm not thinking about, you know, disability access. I'm not thinking about um, whether the poorest in my community even has the internet to access some of my my events. Um, but it's constantly having to think of yourself as like, how could you be the oppressor rather than how am I the savior? Right, right. That is so true. I often, if I can just reflect candidly with you for a minute, like my. Cool. My journey too is, um, you know, I've had to grapple with, especially over the last few years, like I think our pandemic endemic has added a different layer to all of these issues that we're trying to work through. Right. But I just think in the past too, um, I've had to straddle the line of revenues to save relationships with funders or individual donors of our community that they want to make a gift and we can accept the gift because it's written in the traditional gift acceptance agreement that we can accept this gift, but yet accepting the gift is filled with optics that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody wants to talk about the, the, the organization or the corporation to use your you know, previous professional lens that exists within um, the housing stock in our local community, right? And they want to make a charitable contribution. They get their teams together. They do peer-to-peer -peer fundraisers. They have their own auction and they have all this great stuff. And the purpose is to help fam children and families experiencing housing instability and homelessness, yet the corporation themselves are part of a larger team that's convening to prevent the work legislatively that we're trying to be in community with. That was just one example, but I just feel like how, you know, as we get to this place, because this is critical and urgent work that we're all doing, like how, I mean, as a fundraiser, as a leader, how are we going to get to that different space of publicly, because he, healing from all this work is one thing. We haven't talked about the word healing yet. Um, but healing does not always mean full repair. And so how are we going to get to that space? Because I bring a lens of healing to my to my own fundraising work and how I show up with donors. And so I'm wondering if there's a different way 
of maybe approaching this whole thing. What do you think? Wow. Talk about unanswerable questions. (laughs) But it's the beautiful thing here. Like this is iterative, right? Like we don't necessarily know and that's okay. I think, yeah. And it's interesting, you know, like it's like me and you, the people that don't have power when it comes to moving money around and having this conversation, like what do we do? And it's not up to us to do anything really, is it? Like, um, I, I mean, I feel like we need, a, firstly, we need to like take away the smokes and mirrors and see philanthropy for what it is, right? Um, what I find really interesting, like I'm, I'm a big history buff. I love looking at, I love looking at the past and then helping it to inform the future, right? Um, but I was doing a, a panel discussion recently, trying to kind of talk about like the very DNA of philanthropy being this kind of like two-sided coin of I think Derek Vardowell in the UK he's the CEO of 10 years time he calls philanthropy the good cop to capitalism's bad cop right and like the two have always been working in tandem together right and I think about in Bristol in 2020 um, some protesters pulled down the statue of Edward Colston um, who's a slave trader right when you google Edward, Edward Colston uh, what comes up on Wikipedia is Edward Colston slave trader philanthropist business owner and I'm like so you can put slave trader and philanthropist next to each other right and like that makes perfect sense <laughs> because um it's it's in the it's in the DNA of 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 philanthropy and I think we need to you know in order to kind of you kind of need to think about what is the opposite of that and I guess that is community right and it mm-hmm. always goes back to mm-hmm. the community I feel like what will happen is we will try and bureaucracy our way out of this problem when really the money needs to be returned, <laughs> you know, it needs to be returned to the communities that it was stolen from, really, you know, and I'm, t- I'm not talking about, you know, a huge grab that happened in the past. I'm talking about a continued process of, you know, philanthropic endowments. I'm talking about a continued process of kind of, you know, corporate exploitation, Um and, you know, even looking at like colonial companies like the Royal Africa Company, in order to register in uh, the Elizabethan times, the thing with the Elizabethan times, it was set up, you had to have some kind of philanthropic purpose. Mm-hmm. So, right. You know, it, right. it's like the, the, the history of, of it is it, so murky. And I think actually the answers lie outside of philanthropy. And it's not philanthropy that is going to heal us, right? It's philanthropy that is going to support communities to heal us um and I think you know it goes back to that saviorism thing right philanthropy is like we're gonna save the day and it's like if you had the capacity to save the day the day would have been saved right so so actually we need to really rethink what philanthropy's role in all of this is and I think you know philanthropy can support philanthropy can be our co-conspirators but it's not it's not gonna lead the the charge for reparations because that would require kind of the dismantling of the entire system of philanthropy as we know it um and it's yeah I, I think I think it's, it's so complicated and I've never I've never even worked in a foundation like I don't even know what kind of like you know the processes are I just know that it's you know a bit of pain in the ass for me every time I try to get any money right and, um, so, so I would say that you know there needs to be an ideological shift about like you know just because you have money doesn't mean you have expertise right and you know people think that having lots of money means that you have expertise and I'm like generally having lots of money has a history of violence attached to it a history of exploitation attached to it 
So I think we need to stop thinking of, yeah, wealth as in any way knowledgeable about what needs to change, how, you know, how we're going to get out of this situation and bring power back to the hands of communities. Um, And I think we haven't even really, at least in the UK, like we haven't even scratched the surface of that. Like, you know, we can't even admit that there's a problem yet. Uh, Just (sighs) exhausting. I say, yeah. Noah. <laughs> yeah, I oh, I just want to hug you right now. Um, so what that was going to be one of my questions, actually. So backing up a little bit, like when I think of so I, I just assumed a new role at an organization. Uh, it's a beautiful, longstanding organization here in the Twin Cities, and they do aging services, senior care, both center based, community based and in home, wherever that meaningful um, impact is. And you know, I just think of, um, I just secured a, secured a, pros, a prospect visit um, from a, a, a local family, large, large local family foundation um, in the community to come and just share the space and just to understand, like, what are these, the intersections of the broken systems that are um, essentially um, letting us not do good work, essentially. Um, and so, if I were to sit across the table from, let's just call him Andy, um, Andy at this family foundation and say, what's been your part to all of this disaster? And how do you think about power? And like, if I go down that road, like, I think I, that I, I could envision how that conversation would probably end if I drifted out in that way. So I guess my question is, in community, there's a huge appetite like in terms of NGOs, NPOs, like local community-based organizations. There's a huge appetite to have convenings and spaces like this. But in the funder world, um, I, what's the appetite like on another continent? Like, what's the appetite like over there? Because I can tell you what the appetite is like here. And it's like, no, it's, it's there, is, fine. there is no appetite. There is no appetite. No, there, I... Yeah, there is no appetite. Uh, okay. I, okay. I mean, I, I, I just came from just before we were recording. I actually no, that that tell a lie. It, it's it's very few and far between, right? Yeah. And I think because I work in racial justice, philanthropy type stuff, like I get to see the best of this, you know. Right. And I right. think it actually skews my perception of how much things are changing. Um, mm. which is really so it's always difficult for me to really measure because I feel like I, I get to see people who want to change like I get to be in community with, with those kinds of people yeah. Um, I think that overwhelmingly I mean we can even see uh, what happened in COVID-19 with kind of you know the way that fund- funders changed their processes overnight right and there was not not much that was learned from that in the mainstream. I would say the larger funders are going back to business as usual. In fact, they might actually regress, be regressing slightly further back than that, um, which is yeah difficult difficult to see. But yeah, um, I don't think I don't think there's a huge appetite in fund funding. However, I think that from organizations who are the recipients of these funds there is more of an appetite and actually I'm seeing more and more especially like white-led organizations starting to have conversations with their funders um, about 
race, although maybe they're more likely to talk about diversity and inclusion, which I think is a conversation that we don't actually need to be having. We need to be talking about power, white supremacy, et cetera, you know. Um, so I would say the appetite is quite low, um, but it is so much further than it was maybe like two, three years ago. Um, I just came, went to an event that had, you know, Joseph Roundtree, um, one of the charitable trusts in the UK that um, investigated its links with slavery, right? And actually like committed to a, a strategy, I wouldn't call it a reparation strategy, maybe not, but like mm. a strategy that really kind of um, rethinks what its mission is, thinks about how to redistribute wealth to black and brown communities. There's an organization called Lang Kelly Chase as well that is looking at doing um, similar stuff. So Lloyd's as well Foundation, they've committed to supporting black people, recognizing their links with um, the slave trade. Um, so it's happening, it's happening so slowly and it's happening very like piecemeal, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I, I feel like, I know I said that funders are regressing, but I feel like as, 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 as a society, as a body politic, like we can't go back I don't think from like what happened in 2020 and you know there have been you know organizers activists like myself included that were working on this like way before that but actually like 2020 captured so many people in a way that you know I've I've never thought that that would happen you know I honestly like you, you hope um but we went from talking about you know equality or even like we went from trying to avoid talking about equality, diversity and inclusion to talking about white supremacy within our organizations, like maybe not all organizations, but so, yeah, you're, it's, it's hard for me to know the answer. I'm an optimist as well, Noah, so like, I might even be delusional, like, that's fine. I feel like there's a place for delusion in this movement because, do you know what I mean? Like, if I don't have something, a utopia to dream for, then like, what is the actual point of this? Uh, so, so, why are we here know, yes right yeah, okay. so I remain optimistic um but I am disappointed by the, the slow progress and the kind of returning to business as usual mm -hmm. um I think there's mm -hmm. been some interesting so we didn't we didn't have funds that were set up like run by people of color or by black people or anything like that right and then in 2020 um resourcing racial justice uh sprung up which was uh led by kind of black and brown artists activists um who were all about resourcing racial justice the baobab foundation sprang up which is an organization that is looking to you know fund black and brown led organizations so actually when we're thinking about organizations it's not for me it's not so much about changing the organizations that already exist in the colonial mindset because the mm -hmm. master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, right? So these new organizations who are thinking differently about how do we take this slow? How do we fund, you know, 10 years <laughs> rather than funding for a short-term project? Like mm -hmm. this is where philanthropy can support, right? And help those organizations rather than coming in and colonizing essentially right uh this kind of work and you see it in so many you know so many organizations like how can we model best practice in anti-racism it's like you can't you can't you cannot <laughs> so, you cannot so, do it 
Right. You know, like no one could model best practice anyway, because it's not about being the best. And that's that capitalist mindset, right? That colonial mindset um, of victory, I guess. Right. Um, So, yeah, another long, another long winded answer to say there's not much appetite, but there's exciting stuff happening. Right. And sometimes it can get really scary and depressing working in this work when you forget that there is cool stuff happening. it change takes a lot of time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's extremely messy, right? It's yeah. so messy. And I often think there's such parallels to, to the work that I do with, with, you know, major donors or what, whatever kind of supporter you have, right? There's, there's this, like, you think that you think that it's moving in a certain direction and then it's like, Ooh, start, start, Oh, stop, start, stop, mm. start, stop. And yeah. oftentimes, like, I have to remember that the process of transitioning from start to stop for me, that's where the growth happens. Um, and for mm. me, that's where the relationships deepen. And so, you know, as I think of new spaces that are having these conversations, at least locally here in Minnesota, um, gosh, I'm from Minnesota, Minnesota, um, you know, <laughs> one local foundation is really centering community in their grant making and it's happening locally. And they're saying, no, they have a small segment of donor um, dare I say white wealthy donor who wants to set up donor advised funds and mm. they're telling them no, because that's not how their donor advised funds work. That's not their intent is to grow, you know, wealth in that specific way to impact communities, to be disconnected from the work, um, almost like a pass through. So we do have, I think there's also a, that slow churn. There's that local appetite here for something different. And I know that there's, it, it's starting, but that starting mm. always feels a little bit out of reach to so many. But um, you had said a couple times of, um, you know, this kind of a rethinking event or a, a restructuring event. And then you drop the the title of the session on the conference of the master's tools. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about how the conference came to be and what we're going to be talking about in a few weeks here. Yes. And you'll see my face is listen, listen up. That's not a word. Light it up. I don't know. Lit up. It was, it was, you were already lit up. So. <laughs> I know, but it's even like the, the smile gets even wider. Like the entire Zoom screen has just got my teeth in it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um so BAME online conference yeah uh, I love it it is uh probably the best thing that I will ever do in my career um so it came as in response uh to a report that came out by an organization called Ubele Initiative in 2020 and it was uh, looking at kind of the impact of COVID on funding right in the charity sector in the UK And it said that if there was an urgent funding investment um, to black and brown led organizations, that 90 percent of them would close within three months of that report being written. And then a month later, a report came out that said if there is an urgent funding investment in the charity sector overall, then 10 percent of charity sector organizations would close without urgent funding investment. So 10 for the overall wider charity sector. 90% 90% for black and brown led organizations. And, you know, I was campaigning for a campaigning group called Charity So White at that, that time. And we were doing a lot of work um, 
trying to trying to get the sector to even like admit that institutional racism existed but like suddenly like we had the you know we had the proof I guess not like we didn't have proof before but I think COVID really changed the conversation because even though I've known and I'm sure you know nowhere that racism kills us right we could see in the statistics over a very short period of time that racism kills us right racism kills black and brown people um it's not just a theoretical thing that happened in the past it's not just a mean word or you know unconscious bias nonsense it's you know it's 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 the difference between life and death right mm-hmm. um whether it's you know death at the hands of a police officer or whether it's the slow painful death from experiencing you know daily wear and tear of you know racial weathering um is death at the end of the day Anyway, so I got a bit morbid there. Let's go back to the conference. Um, so, um, so uh, that that statistic like kept me up. It was, yeah, really, yeah. I, I mean, I'd worked in fundraising, and I think I hadn't even put two and two together. We were talking about when you realised that you were complicit, right? Right. I didn't. I didn't know that the situation was anywhere near that bad. I'd not even thought about it. I've been fundraising for white-led organisations my entire career, and then campaigning you know, about institutional racism, whereas I had never raised a single penny for a black or brown or led organization, right? And I was had just been named one of the best fundraisers in the UK under the age of 35. And I'm just thinking, I claim to be for my people, yet I haven't raised a single dime for them. Do you know what I mean? And it was just like, oh crap, yeah, I'm I'm part of the problem. I've been part of the problem. I've been part of the reason that these small particularly I was working in the feminist um, organization and the organization I work for was one of the largest ones that would take all the money suck it all up because we had a slick fundraising team we were fantastic and I was enjoying winning I was enjoying getting all the contracts I was enjoying you know not, not thinking about you know what is that doing to the wider landscape mm-hmm. of organizations feminist organizations led by black people who desperately need my organization to step back right yeah. and to not compete for that funding and I you know I had I, I did I did a lot of soul searching <laughs> and I have been doing a lot of souls and I think as I'm sure you can tell um and um I got in touch with fundraising everywhere um who had also seen this statistic and wanted to kind of work on um they do like conferences um wanted to work on an online conference that would support black and brown um people who are leading organizations often who don't have fundraisers within their teams who don't have capacity to fundraise but to kind of yeah support them to learn how to do really good fundraising particularly fundraising that did not rely on trust and foundations and I've had quite an interesting fundraising career in that I've never worked in trust and foundations I've always done individual community corporate major donor all of those things where I think you get a little bit more flex sometimes but you know you're still dealing with you know white supremacy at the end of the day um so we created this conference together um and I spoke with about 100 uh fundraisers who were black or brown or leaders of organizations who were you know supporting black and brown people to find out what sessions that really met their needs would look like and I thought I was going to do like 101 this is how you do corporate fundraising this is how you do this fundraising Actually, they wanted a conversation about institutional fundra- uh, institutional racism in fundraising and philanthropy 
They wanted to talk about what it's like to be the only black face in a room, what it's like to navigate rooms of power, where the person who owns the purse strings went to Eton and understands nothing about, you know, people, young kids who have been excluded from school who, you know, didn't actually end up getting their A-levels or GCSEs, right? Um, So made this conference, thought like 100 people were going to come, like 6,000 people bought tickets. And I was like, 6,000? Yeah, in the first year, right? So I know. And I I was just like, oh my God, little old me. Uh, But it it was incredible. And, you know, and and I didn't realize what what we were doing at the time. And I look back on the conference in the first, in the final session, me and my best friends, I hosted it with my, my best friend, Cam. We were just broke down in tears because all of us who were like the speakers, it was like, you know, 99% people of colour speaking had never been on a panel where they weren't representing every single person of colour in the entire world, you know, or where they weren't being asked the one question about diversity and inclusion um, or, you know, where race was an issue but wasn't an issue because we were there to talk about race and it wasn't like an, an afterthought or oh, let's bring on this kind of person because they can speak for every single black person to have ever existed in fundraising and philanthropy right um and it, yeah and I guess I guess it was so important but also the mainstream charity sector also came <laughs> so it was like this conversation that had yeah started like simmering like bubbling under the surface but suddenly like blown up in you know in into everybody's bedrooms into everybody's offices into everybody's toilets wherever they were listening to it from um <laughs> which was cool right the power of online uh, <laughs> um I don't judge where people want to watch their conferences from you know if you want to do it on the toilet like more power to you um so and so, and yeah, so it was incredible. And it's now in its third year. And I think I have matured a lot in the last couple of years. I feel like everybody has matured 10 years in the last two years, right? Mm. Um, and and I've started to kind of think a lot more about what are the questions that really need to be asked of the sector. No, it's so funny that you mentioned that I've been, I ask you these harrowing questions. And I guess that's what my role is. That I feel like I ask questions that keep me up at night. Um, and create spaces for people to explore that. And the big question is, like, how do you reinvent the system without replicating the master's tools, right? How yeah. do you, how 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 do you do that? You know, um, and I don't have all of the answers, but we see kinds of you know amazing pockets of of resistance. Even this weekend, I went to a retreat just for Black women who work in civil society, where there was no purpose for it apart from to breathe. Right, called exhale and like that was like restorative in a way that I, I never even experienced and I'm just thinking god I don't even take a bloody moment to breathe mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. but I still like I'm still replicating the master's tools if I haven't built into my practice space to breathe space to connect with the earth space to question space to imagine space mm-hmm. to dream space to sleep right <laughs> and, and so yeah, the co- the conference is in its third year. We've gone a little bit further to think more about linking that history of imperialism and colonial extraction to how we make decisions in the charity and philanthropic sector today. 
and the set the session Noah that we're doing together is like for me like the headline one which is why it's called the master schools will never dismantle the master's house new ways to measure success and it's kind of about like thinking through like how these kind of colonial structures like exist within our minds as well and you know what we deem to be a good job or what we deem to be a good outcome is very much kind of like dictated by this history of like colonialism and imperialism um the you know funders expectations of us the way that we write our fundraising strategies like actually what we think is a good job uh tends to just be more <laughs> right it's just more, more like noise. more impact Mm-hmm. yeah it's true it's like it's not really thought out it's like more impact means we've helped more people but I could help a bunch of people that don't need help and then be like I've helped loads of people <laughs> you know or like mm-hmm. I could find the lowest hanging fruit um I could you know find a bunch of middle class boys who are already engaged in the system and say these boys are really engaged or I could engage like six people who never engage with, with with community, with services, whatever, who, you know, are really at risk of, um, of yeah, of harm. Um, and that work is actually more impactful, but we're not able to really kind of, you know, see that as valuable. And, you know, I think so I was talking to um, Jenny Oppenheimer from Lankelly Chase the other day, and she said, the, because the way that we value success and measure success is about more, it incentivizes people to lie mm. about the impact that they've achieved, about the cold calls that they've done. She said, well, that stuff, when I worked in um, some fundraising teams, corporate fundraising teams, like you have to have made this amount of cold calls in a week. And I'm like, for what? Like, you know, I could call anyone. I could call my dad and just put it down as a statistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think now now that Jason is like laughing like Jason you you and I have talked a lot about like just antiquated metrics and so that's actually a really good good transition but uh, boy thank you hey, we're gonna, Jason you you did it you didn't talk I, you didn't speak one I word. didn't I didn't and and <laughs> Martha here's the only here's the only wow. here's the only thing I'm gonna say and then we're gonna wrap this up we've probably already <laughs> lost 90 percent of our listeners <laughs> Martha, as a white guy, as a white American who grew up in red states and and lives in probably one of the reddest counties in the country, um, this may be one of those podcast conversations that I sit my fourteen my my teenagers down in front of and say, "Look, you got to listen to this because they they see their dad doing this stuff all the time." But just sitting here listening to the energy and the conviction, but also mixed with a certain level of vulnerability and humility in between the lines of everything you've just said. And unfortunately, for the sake of our, our listeners, don't get to see the energy in your face. Um, it has certainly been a, a pleasure to host this conversation. To you, Noah, we're just going to have to let you come on here and host because I think you, I think, I think you clearly, <laughs> I think you clearly maybe did this better than I did. Listen, guys, uh, Noah, Martha, I am delighted that you're going to be in the conference together. Martha, you've done a remarkable job making this thing happen, your partnership with Fundraising Everywhere. Martha, Noah, you guys are both coming out uh, with articles in our forthcoming journal. That comes out next week. We're going to make sure that gets out. We're going to put registration information for the conference in the show notes. 
Um, so we're hopefully our team here at Responsive is going to do our part to really drive maybe that extra edge on that remarkable turnout that you've gotten in the past. Uh, Martha, Noah, it has certainly been a pleasure. Thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having you. me. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.